This is the Hullabaloo Podcast. My name is Jeff Sparrow. Chad Parkill is a Melbourne writer whose work has appeared all over the place. He's also the cocktail columnist for Guardian Australia and the author of the new book, Around the World in 80 Cocktails. Welcome to Hullabaloo, Chad. Thanks for having me on, Jeff. It's a great pleasure. Now, look, I've read your work for a long time, but most of the stuff that I've, of yours that I've read is about politics or gender or sexuality or other questions. I had no idea that you had so much erudition and knowledge about alcohol. So when and how did you become so fascinated in cocktail culture? Well, I, th- I think uh, the, the cocktail culture stuff actually, <laughs> in a sense, preceded um, the writing about other, uh, other matters. So... Fundamentally, um, I got into this stuff because I was working as a bartender um, and I was working as a bartender in order to support my writing habits. So um, that was kind of how I put myself through university. Um, and it was a bit of a fallback career in at many stages of my life when I'd you know, be bouncing between jobs and you know needed money. And there's always work in bars. So it's something that I kind of picked up on the job um, and... But that deep knowledge that this book um, displays, I mean, did you study formally at all or was, did you just learn on the job? Oh, yes, I have a, I have a PhD from the uh, Cocktail University. <laughs> no, no, this is, this is all kind of on-the-job learning and self-directed learning, I guess, uh, fundamentally. But uh, having said that, I mean, you know, I, I possess or about a third or two-thirds of a PhD in intellectual history. And while I won't say that, um, you know, influences like Michel Foucault's uh, understanding of historiography have had a massive influence on this, certainly just being in that intellectual milieu and understanding a bit about how professional historians go about putting together works of historiography certainly was an advantage when it came to researching this stuff. 
Okay, let's let's talk about the book. It's structured, as the name suggests, around travel with each cocktail anchored to a particular place. So why don't you give us an example that kind of illustrates that connection, a particular cocktail where the link with a specific location seems uh, especially striking or apt? Oh, yes, certainly. So... You can look at that in a really literal way. So, for example, the Melbourne uh, recipe in this book is the Japanese slipper, which is a cocktail that uh, was, in fact, invented in Melbourne uh, in the 1980s. It came out of Mietta's, which was one of the fine dining establishments in Melbourne at the time and a kind of uh, leading light of the Australian uh, culinary world at that particular point in time. So... That's a really kind of clear-cut example of a very literal connection to the place where you go, okay, so where was this cocktail invented and what's what's the kind of story behind it? Uh, having said that, though, there's lots of cocktails in this book where there's not a really strictly literal sense of connection to place. And to be honest, I think I find those more interesting than um, ones where you're just like, oh, well, where, where, where did this? it come from? Yeah, where did it come from? Um, so the example that I always turn to from the book is the Mai Tai, which, uh, you know, was very literally invented in Oakland in California. Um, and at the time of its invention, Oakland was not seen as a particularly exciting place. No. Uh, that is obviously changing right now. But um, at, at the time, it was kind of considered a, a very boring suburban place. But um, in the book, we obviously don't link that to Oakland. It is instead linked to uh, French Polynesia and Tahiti because that's it's kind of about the idea of the South Pacific as this prelapsarian space of, uh, you know, unspoiled culture where the white man can, uh, you know... Sip his cocktail. Sip his cocktail <laughs> and maybe, you know, shake off some of that uh, infamous white man's burden. Um Oh, oh, look, I, w- I want to come back to, to, to the Mai Tai in particular, because as you say, it's a really interesting example. But before I get on to that, I wanted to ask you about your methodology. Did you, when you were researching and writing this book, were you beginning with the places and then finding the drinks to go along with them? Do you begin, did you have a list of the cocktails you wanted to include and then find the connections geographically? It was actually, it was a little bit of both. So I started off, fundamentally by going, well, what are the most interesting stories that I already know about in terms of these cocktails? So I I kind of received the brief from the publisher. They were very keen to publish a book with this very title, um, but would leave the rest of it entirely up to me. So I was like, okay, I I can very easily come up with 80 cocktails. Um, In reality, it was a little bit harder. (laughs) Um, But I was like, yeah, no, no, we we can do this. So let's start by just thinking, what are the cocktail stories that I really love? Um, And, you know, I started with the bamboo, I think, was the the very first entry that I wrote because I just, A, I really liked that cocktail, and B, I really liked the, the story of it, the idea of it being the first cocktail to be invented in Japan, although... Yeah, having researched it a bit more, I kind of found out that that you know may or may not be true. But just the idea of the first cocktail being first cocktail to have been invented in Japan being something that had no Japanese ingredients whatsoever and was put together by a German guy, you know, that's a kind of fascinating story. So uh, the first part of the process was really just about thinking of all of the different drinks that I knew that had kind of cool background stories that tied to a place in some way or other. Um, That was very swiftly followed up by a kind of realisation that there wasn't a huge geographical spread in that 
And the next stage was kind of mapping out all of the ones I'd done and then looking for, essentially looking at that world map and going, well, where haven't I covered? What's what's a really obvious gap here? And then trying to figure out, well, how do I how do I fill that gap? So that was that was perhaps a, the more challenging part of the process. Um, and I actually have, you know, somewhere in the in the cloud there, there's a Google map of all of the places uh-huh. around the world with you know little pinpoints on them, so I can, you know, so I could kind of figure out exactly what the gaps were and uh, try to start filling those in. Okay, you talked before about um, history of ideas. How would you describe? mixing drinks as a discipline do we say mixology or is that well you can say mixology okay um, how, how do we describe mixology as a discipline is, is it a craft is it a vocation what is it as a body of knowledge oh that's such a good question and i i really love it um look i i think there's there's a couple of different answers to that i i would suggest first and foremost that it is kind of a craft um and I know that there's currently a lot of bartenders out there who would like to see it understood as an art form. But, uh, you know, one of, the, one of the great things about craft is that you, it's kind of repeatable. You're doing, you're making things with your hands for consumption. It doesn't have to be this kind of rarefied thing. It can just be about being, trying to be as good at this process as humanly possible and just repeating it um, you know, seemingly ad infinitum sometimes when you're in the middle of a, a long shift and you're smashing <laughs> up the cocktails. But, um, you know, that's, I think that's a really healthy way of looking at it is as a craft rather than as an art form. And, you know, if, if we if we as bartenders start to think of ourselves as artisans, it can, you know, encourage, uh, it can encourage perhaps less than healthy uh Ways of engaging with our work. You mean you know? a, a level of pretentiousness? Yeah, or? a level of pretentiousness and also just, uh, you know, a sense of that tortured genius stuff, um, which is probably not a great thing to encourage when you, you are working with liquor. Like, you know, you don't want <laughs> you don't want people to, to feel like they're, you know, sort of mad geniuses who need to drink on the job to get their work done or whatever. It's, it's I think, much healthier to kind of focus on it as a, a series of very discreet, steps to put a drink together um, and you can hone that craft you can get better at it um, but it's all about practice and repetition and mindfulness and just being in the moment and making those drinks um, that's in terms of the actual putting together of drinks um, the stuff about writing about drinks is really fascinating um, in terms of its history because for a very long time there wasn't really huge amounts of documentation of what was going on in terms of making these drinks. Because it was just a trade secret. Yeah, it was trade secret or, you know, people, for whatever reason, didn't feel that it was worth really recording what was going on. So, you know, a lot of the the, the historiography that's gone into the world of cocktails kind of reaches to a, – a lot of it reaches a point where we just don't know about certain things. So – where does the martini come from? There's a really great question, and the answer is it's still a bit of a mystery. You know, we can point to different things and say, well, this kind of looks like a dry gin martini, and it emerges at this particular point in time, usually around the turn of the 20th century. But 
we fundamentally can't really say this is where the first martini was mixed. Yeah, I'm curious about that because throughout the book you draw on this source material that seems a mix of recipe books but also travel narratives and also memoirs. So is is there a sort of, I don't know, distinct genre about writing about liquor that emerges at some point or are you just excavating from whatever sources you can find? Uh, I think it's a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B. There's a there's a really well-established corpus of drinks books uh, stretching from the middle of the 19th century and that's that's really where you start to see these books appear um, and there's you know there are some interesting little kind of mini scandals about that stuff so uh, Jerry Thomas's book is kind of understood to be the very first guide to bartending and the, the first time a bartender sort of sat down and wrote a book about how to how to make drinks and put kind of codified his knowledge into a book um, but at the same, at, around the same time... And what, um, what time are we talking about? So this is in the middle of the 19th century. So right. I think, um, I'm just trying to remember the precise dates, eight, 1840, oh, I want to say 49. Let's go with that. We can, you know, we'd have to, I'd have to double check the yep. dates on that. But um, you've got, you've got this book that emerges um, as the very first, but, um, you know, not... Too much later, there's um, another book that comes out that claims to be the second edition of the ah. first bartender's guide. It's written by um, another guy, um, and it's it's this kind of little miniature scandal about who who has who's written the first cocktail uh, book. And, and are these books written for the trade? Are they for, for from one bartender to another, or are they for sort of gentlemen who might like a drink to, to know more about how they're, they're made? Fundamentally, though, they were written for the trade. It's about, you know, teaching people how to become a bartender. So there's very, you know, very strong practical uh, aspect to these early cocktail books. They're all about here's how to do it. Um, Whereas what you start to see a bit later on is that blurring of the lines. So I'm I'm just thinking here of uh, Charles Baker's phenomenal uh, work, uh, who he, he himself has a um, has a series of books about travelling around the world and imbibing different drinks. <laughs> of he does. Yes, it's really interesting stuff. Um, and he was travelling around the world uh, in the 20s and 30s um, as this kind of very interesting, louche gentleman, scholar type who I, I don't, I actually don't understand where he got his money. He was a, you know, a friend of Hemingway's and uh, appeared to live this fantastically kind of, uh, I don't know, uh, cosmopolitan lifestyle where he was perpetually sailing around the world on a yacht and uh, would stop in at various different exotic ports and sample the local wares and jot down the recipes. And that was, you know, that was kind of how he went around. So he had you know, he had a book. He had books about um, different uh, f- food that he was consuming around the world and recipes for it, and also different drinks. Um, but that's that's where you start to see. That's obviously less aimed at cocktail bartenders and being a strict sense of here's how He's to how engage in the craft, and more about this sort of lifestyle of. Uh, you know, that you can vicariously absorb. I absolutely, yes. Yeah. You know, it's. Uh, not a very practical 
<laughs> Not a very practical guide at the moment. Okay, before we leave this particular area, one of the things that's always struck me when we're talking about cocktails, but also wine that makes them different from the other culinary arts, is you're dealing with a drug. Alcohol, obviously, is is a drug. Would it be possible to have a similar discourse about non-alcoholic mixed drinks? Is the drug aspect of cocktails essential to them? I mean, I know you know. I know there are mocktails and so forth, but you know what there I mean. There are, yes. Um, I I kind of feel like you you could maybe say, theoretically, you could absolutely have similar levels of interest in um, non-alcoholic drinks. That uh, there could be really interesting stories about different mocktails that were put together. But uh, to be honest, <laughs> I kind of feel like the fact that we're interested in these drinks does have a lot to do with the, you know, the pharmacological nature, for want of a better term, of the drinks. You know, they, we are interested in cocktails fundamentally because they affect us. If we, if cocktails didn't have that alcoholic effect, I I genuinely wonder if people would actually be that interested in them. Okay, because what 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 I'm driving at is you know we, we, with the the decriminalisation of marijuana that's taking place you know rolling out across North America, there's a new kind of vocabulary that's 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 developing around the various marijuana dispensaries, but they're all to do with a language relating to intoxication. You know what I mean? It's the kind of you smoke this particular variety, you yeah. get stoned in this way. That's it. If you if you have an indica, you'll have the lovely floaty high. And if oh, sorry, it's actually it's the other way around. I can't. I can never remember indicas versus sativas. <laughs> One of them's supposed to be the the couch lock. You know, they get really get really ripped and see through time kind of thing. And the other one's supposed to be the the very kind of uh, yeah. light. You know, functional. You can get stuff done high. And there's huge <laughs> discussions and debates around all that stuff. The, the, the vocabulary that accompanies um, mixology doesn't seem to have any of that. Am I, am I missing that? No, I mean, no, there's I think... no discussion about, well, this with this drink, you'll get drunk in this in way. This particular way. Look, I, I think outside of, there is perhaps a bit of a folk tradition of thinking that certain kinds of alcohol will affect you in certain kinds of ways. So, you know, I think tequila is an example that I'll always sort of refer to when thinking about this. Um, I'm just thinking about, um, you know, my own parents actually have this uh, wonderful slash hideous story about the only time they ever got drunk on tequila. Um, you know, they famously told me that they got drunk on tequila once and at, at a you know little ball in the country town that we were growing up in and uh, took their shoes off and danced barefoot and only at the end of the night did they realise they'd been dancing all over broken glass all over the floor and after that they swore never to do tequila again. So this was the uh, the cautionary tale about the, the dangers of uh, tequila. And, and there's obviously similar discourse about gin, for instance, you know, it makes you oh, melancholy. Yes, it makes you melancholy and makes you cry and, or, you know... Um, one one that I particularly like is uh, Pernod, apparently. You know, people will often say about Pernod that it has a really dreamy kind of drunkenness that you get. And, um, 
you know, having having imbibed too much Pernod um, a couple of times, I can uh, concur with that statement. It's it's really lovely. Um, the hangover the next day, less less so. But um, I think you're right that there isn't so much of a discourse about the effects of drink in the world of mixology, principally because on a really basic scientific level, ethanol will affect the human body in pretty much the same way, no matter huh. how it's delivered to the system. Uh, there is there is perhaps a little talk about um, the role that uh, certain kinds of sweeteners, for example, will um, have. And there's a little apocryphal tale of, um, I believe it was... I'm just trying to remember if it was Trader Vic, uh, who famous, who was supposed to have used inverted sugar syrups, and that's where you, you know, you're warming the sugar syrup up, and it has certain chemical changes in in the sh- in the way the sugar is absorbed by the body, that sort of inc- lead to an increase in um, uh-huh. alcohol absorption. Um, but uh, there's a story about one of the tiki. Bartenders, um, either Trader Vic or Don Beachcomber, who was supposed to have used invert sugar syrup whenever someone came up to the bar and you know said, "Oh, these drinks aren't strong enough," and he just, "Oh, well, let me make you another one, and I'll <laughs> use this special sugar syrup instead of this other sugar syrup," and uh, then the person you know immediately falls over. Um, I think, think my twelve-year-old self would have liked Trader, <laughs> Trader Vic. So you give the date for the first use of the term cocktail as seventeen ninety-eight. Presumably before that, though, people were mixed mixing alcoholic drinks in various ways. What's the prehistory of the cocktail? What are the precursors to it? The really big one there is punch, um, which fundamentally, uh, obviously a much earlier phenomenon, and that comes from British contact with India. That's the the kind of nexus of punch is British colonial contact and very early British colonial contact. So we're talking, you know, 17th century contact there um so it's fruit based is fruit that- based yeah so um punch there's a lot of these kind of folk etymologies of where does where does punch come from um and punch really is about having a spirit base um some sugar some water some citrus usually lime and it can contain spice so there's you know some people say oh well, it's based off um the Punjabi word for five, which is punch, or something along those lines. So it's got the five ingredients. But, you know, again, as with a lot of the uh, history in this book, nailing down those very specific origins is quite difficult. Um, But certainly, obviously, people were mixing alcoholic drinks long before the word cocktail appeared on the scene. And the really interesting thing about the cocktail is the way that it sort of moved from a very delimited word that uh, referred to one particular type of mixed drink, which uh, is a mixture of sugar, water, bitters and spirit, um, a.k.a. a bitted sling, to encompassing the whole of the, the whole, I guess, gamut of different mixed drinks. So, you know, it's a little bit of a synecdoche kind of situation yeah. where, you know, the part has been mistaken for the whole. Um, and I know that there are some historians of drinks, um, particularly one person named Andrew Willett, uh, who uh, is a real <laughs> real hard-ass about this stuff, a real kind of um, linguistic, uh, you know, 
rather than you'd say like a prescriptivist or a descriptivist in the linguistic sense, he's very much a prescriptivist in terms of, well, you can't call this a cocktail because it doesn't have bitters in it, yeah. for example. Um, so the, in terms of the history of the, the word itself, obviously there are lots of precursors to the cocktail, um, but what really interests me is how did this one particular subtype of drink come to be taken as the epitome of the mixed drink. Yeah. So this is 19th century America. Why there? What was the equivalent drink in, say, Australia or Britain at that time? Well, um, so the the word cocktail, to refer to a kind of mixed drink, emerges in England rather than America, but it didn't really take off there for various reasons. Um the the very interesting thing about the early use of the word cocktail at the very end of the 18th century there is um, its connection to the sale of horses so there's what? a little bit of a there's a little bit of a not safe for work story attached to this so to anyone's best knowledge the term cocktail kind of comes from the sporting milieu where you'd have this practice known as um, figging or figging, which is about what you do to sell a tired old horse uh, who's, you know, getting a bit long in the tooth and you want to make a quick buck off. Um, and what you'd do is you'd take a little piece of ginger and you'd peel the ginger and then you'd stick, it, yeah, yeah, you'd stick it in the horse's bottom and the horse would perk up, would cock its tail, as it were, um, and it would suddenly appear lively. Um, it would prance about and it would look like a much younger horse. Um, so it's a bit of an artificial stimulant. And certainly, you know, etymologically speaking, uh, I, I think this story has a lot going for it, um, not least of which is the fact that in its very earliest incarnations, the cocktail was a morning after drink. It was the thing you have to sort yourself out after a big night beforehand and the bitters in the cocktail, the kind of ingredient that made it a cocktail rather than merely a sling, those were understood to have medicinal properties at that time. So that story, I think, makes makes sense to me. It's the, certainly the best explanation I've yet heard of, uh, you know, how, how this term cocktail came to yeah. be associated with the mixed drink and um, probably probably a lot more sensible than some of the other proposed etymologies, which will have to do with silly things like, you know, drinks being served in egg cups or uh, people stirring mixed drinks with a feather from a... From a cock. Yeah, feather from a rooster or whatever. <laughs> and uh, who, who are the people who are drinking um, these early cocktails? Are these uh, society types? Is this a gentleman's drink? Yeah, absolutely. So as the, um, as the kind of morning after the night before might indicate really it was a sort of dissolute class. So the sporting... The sporting gentleman. Yeah, the sporting gentleman. So the person who has money uh, but who isn't necessarily a productive member of society who has the opportunity to fritter away that money. All on, those bad characters yeah, in Jane, Jane Austen novels. <laughs> absolutely. So those the, the kind of American versions of those really would be the, the people who popularised the cocktail... Um, so sporting dudes um, and dissolute members of the upper classes in 19th century America. You say that it's prohibition that sends the cocktail 
global. How does that work? Well, I, I want to. I, I would like to. I'd like to qualify that a little bit. I think prohibition really was the main event in terms of globalizing the cocktail, but uh, there certainly were forays around the world before that that are, are worth mentioning. So, you know, obviously the the cocktail's cradle is nineteenth century America. That's really where you get the first definition of what a cocktail is, and um, that's where you start to see early cocktails being put together. Um, around the middle of the 19th century, you have forays out into the wider world where people sort of pick it up as this really exotic and exciting American invention. Um, so as part of that, for example, the 1867 Universal Exposition in Paris had an American stand and part of that was an American bar. And yeah, right. that was where the Sherry Cobbler uh, was kind of made its global debut um, it was a very popular drink in the States uh, for a little while before that, but that's where it made its kind of global debut and Parisians were just absolutely taken by this new drink. They are like, wow, this is amazing. And that American bar went through uh, up to 500 bottles of sherry per day to keep up with Jesus. the demand for it, which is you know, quite, quite something. So, so they have, there were prior to Prohibition there were these sort of pushes out into the wider world where, you know, as an kind of envoy of American culture, the cocktail started spreading around. Um, similarly, that's where the cocktail arrived in Australia. It kind of came to Australia with gold miners who were coming from California. So gold miners coming from California after their gold rush, coming down to Melbourne, Bendigo, Ballarat, Golden Triangle to find new fortunes there, they brought with them a taste for cocktails that they'd acquired um, as part of the California gold rushes. And so that's how cocktail culture arrived in Australia. Having said that, really fundamentally, it was seen as a bit of an exotic novelty until Prohibition. And that, because you've got this, um, I'm just trying to remember how many years we're talking about, but just over a decade really of... Um, you've got over a decade of dryness in America where bartenders are out of work. Um, people who like to drink these fancy cocktails <laughs> need to go to elsewhere. Do. They've got nothing to do. Yeah, so if you had the money, you'd, uh, you know, you'd, you'd basically go elsewhere. Um, or And then you'd be demanding yeah, that yeah. the drink you liked when you were in New York is Absolutely. now available in Paris. Absolutely, yeah, and that's, that's really the, the movement that... Uh, you know, sort of decentered the cocktail away from America for that for that decade, and that's really, I think, how cocktail culture truly became a global phenomenon uh, for good, rather than these kind of very limited little forays out into the wider world. So, um, and certainly, this is where you see, for example, Cuba having a huge role in cocktail culture because. Cuba was for Playboys. Yeah. yeah, it was the closest. It was the closest country uh, to <laughs> the closest bar you could. Yeah, go the closest. To. It was quite literally. You know, you could uh, you could hop on a boat from Florida if you were in Florida. You could just hop on a boat, and within a couple of hours, you're in a wet country, and you can start drinking again. And there were all of these <laughs> kind of tourist packages. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> there were these tourist packages where you'd have these have these little jaunts. Get hammered in down. Havana. Yeah, get hammered in Havana. And indeed, that was that was really what happened. A lot of uh, tourists would come to Havana and they'd hop on, 
you know, hop in a taxi and go straight to the nearest bar and then just never leave until <laughs> they had to go home. That was that was how it was. Certainly if you went to Sloppy Joe's, was one of the, the more famous establishments there. Um, that was his entire business model was just getting As I feel that Americans. the name might be a little bit suggestive of what happens <laughs> in Sloppy Joe's. Exactly. Um, and that was, that was an insult, famously an insult um, that was delivered to him by a competing bartender who said, you know, you should call this place Sloppy Joe's because it's, it's disgusting. And he was like, well, I'll, I'll take that and uh, use, it as my, use it as my tagline. And huh. uh, it brought the tourists in. People loved it. People loved what happened at Sloppy Joe's. At various times in the book, you discussed Japan as a time capsule for cocktail history. What, what's that about? So that's, I mean, that's kind of part of this um, internationalization of the cocktail. Um, as I mentioned it with the story of the bamboo, um, cocktail culture did arrive in Japan at the very end of the 19th century. So, you know, in the 1890s, around 1896, I believe, um, was when you have the first kind of documented evidence of bamboo cocktails being mixed by um, Louis Eppinger at the Grand Hotel in Yokohama. Um, and for for whatever reason, and I suspect it has something to do with the kind of ritualistic aspects of preparing a drink, but Japanese people really took to the cocktail. Um, and when prohibition happened in the United States, obviously a lot of institutional knowledge was lost. So a lot of that kind of very fundamental, here's how, here's how to put together a good drink, here's what a good balanced drink tastes like, here are some of the more refined techniques you can use to make a drink. A lot of that really vanished, um, at least from the United States. Some of it was taken to other places around the world, um, but there was this sort of loss of institutional knowledge. But um, what people found was that in Japan, a lot of those traditions had remained basically unchanged. Um, throughout Prohibition and throughout the kind of very long post-Prohibition period of uh, the later 20th century where, to put it kindly, a lot of bad cocktails were being made, <laughs> um, in, certainly in the United States and also elsewhere in the world. That was, a, that was a period where fundamentally, you know, not a lot of technique was going into the way drinks were made um, and the the sense of i guess balance and precision that was a hugely important part of pre-prohibition mixology was kind of thrown out the window it's the era of uh, disco drinks and fluffy ducks and japanese slippers and all of those quite naff uh 80s cocktails that we all you know like to avoid these days so japanese bartending essentially functioned as a as a time capsule uh especially in the early 21st century, what you'd find was that a lot of bartenders were looking to Japanese sources as this kind of uh, inspiration. And the the most, I think, the most appropriate uh, anecdote about that really is just about uh, there's a little bar that still exists in New York called Angel Share, which is a hidden bar inside a Japanese restaurant. Um, it's just uh, down on Stuyvesant Street in uh, the East Village, if anyone wants to check it out. Um, 
and it's this you know tiny little speakeasy style place um but it it was the very first of those really exciting craft cocktail bars and it very directly inspired Sasha Petrasky who opened a little joint called Milk and Honey which really became the figurehead for this entire kind of craft cocktail movement which really was in many cases about going back to basics and just trying to figure out how people used to do it um, before this kind of for want of a better term, perversion of the craft. One of the things that jumped out at me reading your book was it seemed like cocktail culture was almost a globalised culture from the start where geography served as a signifier of exoticism as much as anything else. I mean, you touched before on the Mai Tai and, and, and tiki culture, which is, the, I guess, the, the foremost example of that. Yeah, this absolutely. mythological sort of sense of the South Pacific. But is that right? I mean, were there, were there any places where a local and quite different attitude to, to making mixed drinks evolved, you know, in, in opposition to this sort of American globalised cocktail tradition? Oh, that's that's a really interesting question. I mean, I think I don't think it's necessarily been the case that there's an oppositional relationship, but certainly different parts of the world have taken um, American cocktail culture and turned it into something quite unique. So Cuba's a, a good example. There's um, a, a lot of interest right now at the moment in Cantinero cocktail culture, which is really about what was going on in Cuba just prior to Prohibition and during Prohibition when the thirsty hordes from the north kind of descended on on Cuba. And uh, so Cuban cocktails are having a little moment in the sun right now in terms of uh, interest from bartenders. Um, and, you know, what people are interested in isn't necessarily just the ingredients but the kind of sensibility so what makes a cuban cocktail different from something that was happening in the states around that same time or you know elsewhere in the world so i think the thing that really struck me when i was researching this book was really just about how this monolithic uh u.s sense of cocktail culture sort of traveled the world and then became localised through an interesting kind of process of, you might you might call it creolization really, of, um, you know, being embraced by locals and being modified. So, you know, it, it could be ingredients, but more often than not, it's really about a kind of sensibility. Um, so you might think, for example, of uh, South America and Argentina uh, having this really strong European influence from you know, Italian and uh, German and French immigrants all coming to Argentina to kind of find their fortunes. Um, And then American cocktail culture arrives there. And so it's already this kind of mixing pot, melting pot, I should say, of different cultural influences. And the cocktail could kind of fit in very well there because it itself is about mixing. Mm. Um, And so you get all of these interesting drinks coming out of South America that... Uh, have to do with essentially you're taking an American template but you're modifying it in this really kind of interesting cosmopolitan way. So uh, one of the drinks that I feature um, from Uruguay actually rather than um, Argentina but uh, it applies equally 
to there is uh, the San Martin cocktail, which is a modified version of a sweet martini. And you're just adding a little bar spoon of one of any of uh, any number of different uh, ingredients. And they're usually, you know, some kind of exotic European um, elixir. So it could be something like chartreuse or cherry hearing or any of these unusual ingredients that people um, have acquired a taste for in the old country that they're bringing over to the new world. Okay, because I, I, I'm glad you, you used the word sensibility because that jumps out at me and again it's another theme that you that that runs through your book this sense of people wanting not just particular flavors but to associate themselves with a particular idea by drinking this drink i guess that's the nature of any commodity but i was kind of struck that while some of those that sensibility is to do with foreign locations the theme that runs through the cocktail it seems to me is that cocktail culture reflects sophistication prestige in some ways it's almost a quintessential signifier of wealth and privilege a little bit like a top hat or a cigar yeah. both of which things that I, I like a great deal <laughs> and would wear a hot top hat and smoke cigars all the time if I could but um is it is it is that um is, is that a fair assessment that the cocktails have always been a, a way of sort of signifying that that kind of social prestige I, I think so. Um, I, I would add the caveat, though, that part of the appeal of the cocktail, and certainly I think part of the reason why the cocktail is experiencing a v- revival at this very moment um, in world history, is to do with the fact that it's it has those associations, but it can be acquired on the relatively cheap. So right. you can... You know, uh, I mean, is there a populist, a socialist cocktail? Oh, absolutely. Uh, (laughs) Well, we've we've got some uh, communist cocktails in the book. In fact, Uh, the Soviet, uh, the Russian Soviet punch um, is a great one. Soviet uh, champagne punch, Uh, and I can talk. I can run you through that one if you like. It's uh, it's got a really interesting (laughs) history behind it. Um, But in terms of your question, I think absolutely the cocktail has these signifiers, like the. The dry gin martini, for example, um, being hoisted aloft um, by Leonardo DiCaprio in gif form is, yes. uh, you know, one of those uh, images, uh, a kind of iconic image uh, from, obviously, from the Baz Luhrmann adaptation of The Great Gatsby. Um, I think that kind of encapsulates the way that we relate mixed drinks to a certain kind of class. And it, it might even be the case that, you could say that, um, you know, obviously in The Great Gatsby, Gatsby's a fraudster, um, that there is a bit of ah. there is a bit of the sham about the cocktail as well, that it's, um, you know, certainly I think to people who are heavily invested in wine culture, for it's example, it's, it's, it's a bit nouveau riche and uh, ah. the proper old school money types are sitting around popping bottles of, you know, Les or something like that rather than, uh, you know, mixing dry gin martinis. But, you know, you can, you can go out and you can spend $20 on a cocktail, say, in, in Australia circa 2017. Um, that's about the going rate for a good cocktail. You can go out and you can spend that amount of money on a cocktail. And it's not, it's not an, an insignificant sum of money, um, but it's not a huge amount either. And 
It's less can, than a top hat. It's less than a top hat, and it's certainly less than a cigar, thanks to uh, <laughs> the current taxation regime on tobacco products here. So it's it's the kind of thing that you can go out and you can experience something, and it can make you feel a bit classy for a, a, a sort of short amount of time. And I think that's part of the that's always been part of the appeal of the cocktail is that it's a little tiny slice of the high life. Um, I'm about to run out of time, but before I. Before I let you go, I want to just touch briefly on some of the characters who reappear throughout the book. Um, there's a bunch of names, but just to throw some of you, some of them at you, bartending legend Harry McElhone? McElhone? McElhone, uh, yes. McElhone. Yes. What's uh, his story? Uh, McElhone. Um, oh, um, sorry. I'm... No, no, that's okay. 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 Oh, 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 no, okay. The one I really want to know about then is Jeff Beachbum Berry, uh, who appears yes. about five times throughout the book. Yes, I, I, look, I, I've met, I've met Jeff, um, and he is just the sweetest character. He's such a character and a really sweet guy. So he is fundamentally um, the tiki historian. Um, he's written several books about tiki. The most interesting of which I think is one called Potions of the Caribbean, um, <laughs> which is a really great name for a book. Uh, so he has this really interesting background um, as a kind of amateur tiki sleuth. So he, he got sort of got bitten by the tiki bug and started investigating this stuff. So tiki's late 50s, early 60s? Is that? Well, it kind of goes back to the 30s in its earliest incarnation, but it, the, the full flowering of tiki was really post-World War II. Right. So late 40s, early 50s through to the 60s, that's where you've got the, the huge kind of flowering of tiki culture. And it's all about that exoticism of the South Seas, um, you know, uh, a bit of... Uh, I always associate with xylophones. Yeah, yeah, and exotica music as well. There's <laughs> yeah. absolutely a musical component. Um, in, in a lot of it's to do, obviously, with uh, Hawaii becoming a member state of the United States and um, also to do with the US's involvement in the Pacific. You know, the this was really a point in time at which the South Seas were all very new to the average person in the United States, so very exotic. Um, and very interesting. Um, but he got he kind of got bitten by this tiki bug um, and sort of started investigating all of the different connections around and about. Um, and one of the things that he did that uh, for which future generations of bartenders will, I think, remember his name is that he decoded a lot of the coded recipes. So what do you mean coded? So a lot of the tiki bartenders, um, or the originators of tiki, so people like uh, Trader Vic and Don Beach, they really wanted to protect their intellectual property. And what they'd do is they'd pre-batch certain ingredients in unmarked bottles, or they'd just label them oh with God. names like spices number five or rum number three. And the recipes that their bartenders were working with would be you know, two ounces of rum number three and two dashes of spices number five, orange juice or something like that. And that way they were protecting their recipes and they would often like try to send spice to each other's restaurants and figure out what was going on. It was a bit of a skull and crossbones kind of situation. So that was the way that they protected their intellectual property. Um, and... For that reason, a lot of the recipes for tiki drinks until very recently, and I'm talking in the last couple of years recently, 
we just didn't know what was in the original versions of a lot of them. So the zombie is one of the most famous tiki drinks. And until until Jeff Berry, Beach Bum, uh, as he's called in the trade, until Beach Bum, you know, cracked that code. And he did that by interviewing loads of bartenders who'd worked with these people <laughs> and finding old notebooks. And it took a lot of, like, solid investigative work. But until that point in time, nobody knew what was in the very first um, original zombie. Um, <laughs> it's a dirty job that someone's yeah, going to do. Yeah. Uh, um, and he's he's just such a lovely guy. Um, if If you are interested in the history of... Uh, if you are interested in the history of tiki as a kind of cultural phenomenon, but also specifically the drinks involved, um, his book Potions of the Caribbean is really interesting. And it makes the fundamental argument that it makes, which I find quite fascinating, is that um, while tiki culture is all about the South Seas in terms of its visual presentation, in terms of the drinks it's making, it's all taken directly from a much longer and a very rich Caribbean mixed drinks tradition. Huh. Yeah. Okay, very quickly, A.D. Coley Coleman. I mean, it seems like a very blokey world, but she seems to be a pioneer mixologist. Absolutely. So, uh, I mean, I I adore her. Her enduring creation is the hanky-panky. Um, and there is a little bit of uh, suggestion that she might well have created lots of other um, long-lived drinks, but uh, had been erased from the official history by her um, successor, um, Jesus! Yeah, I know. Into a world, this, <laughs> this cocktail—it it, it can get, it can get get a bit like that. So uh, the Savoy cocktail book um, is where she, you know, she's credited for one of the drinks in the Savoy cocktail book. Um, but she was the head bartender at the Savoy for a very long amount of time. So the implication is that uh, some of the other some of the other uh, cocktails in the Savoy cocktail book could well be her creation as well. Um, but she's an absolutely fascinating figure um, who kind of came up through the world of uh, department stores, um, you know, came into the uh, hotel business, uh, was the protege of Doily Cart, um, who... People who are into Gilbert and Sullivan may know as huh. Gilbert and Sullivan's uh, mentor and bankroller. So she has a connection to that world as well. Um, so Doily Cart's protege um, came into the world of cocktails, uh, learned how to mix her first Manhattan uh, at, at a relatively young and tender age, and you know, kind of Never very swiftly back. worked her way up the ranks until she was the head bartender at the Savoy. And that was with a bit of um, bit of genius timing too. She was the head of the Savoy just at the moment Prohibition came into effect. Um, and so all of the well-heeled uh, cosmopolites, for want of a better term, uh, from the United States who wanted to, to wet London. their whistles were heading to places like Paris and London. And when they got there she'd be the person pouring them a drink. So she had she was in the right place at the right time as well for broader cultural impact. Um, All right, Chad, um, you've written a book around the world in 80 cocktails, which is about cocktails. Have you created a cocktail? A few, a few. <laughs> um, look, it's uh, one of the great things about cocktails is 
the adaptability. So I, I'm not going to say that I'm some sort of cocktail creation genius who has invented sui generis delicious drinks. Um, but one of the great things, of course, is that you can take a template and modify it and just work so with it. So if I was going to drink a Chad Park Hill creation this weekend, what would it be? Ooh, so um, let me let me just think. I must say, you told me the other day about the bamboo, which I just think is the best, the best thing ever. Oh, I do love a bamboo. I I really really <laughs> love a bamboo. Um, look, if if you like a drink like that, one something I've had a great success with is working with variations on that theme. So, a classic version of the bamboo is um, an Adonis, which swaps out the dry vermouth for sweet vermouth and uses a bit of a, a richer um, sherry base, so something like an Oloroso or a um, Palo Cortado, something along those lines. So you, you're, it sort of takes it away from that martini territory towards a Manhattan territory. Um, but if you want something a little bit original, um, something I've had a great amount of success with is mixing up a, an Adonis with some uh, Madeira, in place of the sherry. So Madeira is this kind of fantastic fortified wine from the island of Madeira, which is a Portuguese territory. Um, super interesting stuff. A little tricky to mix with because it has it has some really, like it's got really juicy acidity and it's it's got interesting and funky flavours um, that can overpower a drink. But um, in this... In this case, it works really well. So you can just go equal parts, 45 mils or so of Madeira with some sweet vermouth, a couple of dashes of bitters, and that's an original cocktail of sorts, <laughs> a little modified Adonis. Um, but, you know, you can you can kind of just take those templates and mash them up. Um, so something I'm playing around with at the moment, um, it's, it's not a finalised drink yet, but um, I'm trying to find a way to make this work is a kind of a mashup of a pisco sour and a Hemingway daiquiri. So the Hemingway daiquiri is obviously white rum, uh, a little bit of lime juice, a little bit of grapefruit juice, um, some maraschino liqueur. Um, and that's just a beautiful flavour combination. But I started think I sort of got this idea from uh, somewhere, I don't know where, that um, it would be really delicious to kind of mash that up with a pisco sour, which is pisco lime egg white, sugar syrup, um, and just have the kind of same sense of uh, the same kind of flavours but in a, in a sour format with the, with the egg white. So I'm sort of playing around with pisco, lime juice, a little bit of um, grapefruit juice, maraschino, egg white, trying to make this combination work. Um, well, Chad, we'll have to get you back to report on your success. But in the interim, thank you so much for being on Hullabaloo. The book is Around the World in 80 Cocktails, and we've been talking to its author, Chad Parker. Thank you so much. Thank you.